I think they've moved away from the Obama era and really from our policy of decades now of uh, engage but hedge to one that I characterize as sort of compete, counter and contain. It's a highly defensive strategy. It's about pushing back against China without actually articulating what the U.S. stands for and what it is that we're bringing to the table. Well, I think it's pretty simple. He's a deal maker. He's proud of being a deal maker. So he looks at China as a set of deals. And I think one of those negotiations was the January 5th and 6th discussions. We want to help you and send some scientists to Wuhan. How about it? President's characterized his talks pretty much like that. And since that date, when Xi Jinping would not accept an offer of help in Wuhan, the president, I think, has felt betrayed. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Elizabeth Economy and Michael Pillsbury. Elizabeth is a senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution and a senior fellow for Chinese studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. She is one of the United States' foremost experts on Chinese domestic and foreign policy and an acclaimed author. Her books on China include The Third Revolution, Xi Jinping and the New Chinese State, The River Runs Black, and By All Means Necessary, How China's Resource Quest is Changing the World. Michael is the director of the Center on Chinese Strategy at the Hudson Institute. He has served in important positions in presidential administrations from Richard Nixon to Barack Obama and has been an informal advisor to President Trump, who has called him the leading authority on China. He is the author of several books on China, including the best-selling The Hundred-Year Marathon. Liz, Mike, welcome to the podcast. I'm really looking forward to today's discussion with two of the foremost experts on China, two people who have been following China closely for many years. But before we dive in, I'm going to ask each of you to briefly tell our listeners how and when you developed your interest in China and to what extent some of your early impressions of the country were formative and enduring. So Liz, let's start with you. When did you decide to devote your career to studying China? So I would guess that my path to China was somewhat more circuitous than that of many of my colleagues, um, because my intellectual passion was actually the Soviet Union. And I studied uh, Russian and Russian history and literature and Soviet politics when I was in high school and college, and even through my master's program. That's what I focused on. I lived in Leningrad before it reverted and became St. Petersburg again. And my first job was working at the CIA as the Gorbachev analyst. So I would say I didn't really start focusing on China until I began my PhD studies. And I was persuaded by a couple of professors to do comparative communist politics. And I think my work at the CIA and sort of study of the Soviet Union both brought to my study of China an appreciation for the importance of elite politics, that leaders matter as well as a sense of you know, sort of government structure, party structure, what does it mean to have a socialist economy? But in terms of my formative experiences in China, uh, I think certainly that came as a result of my 
dissertation work on China and Russia and climate change strategies uh, in the early and mid 1990s. And then my, the work that I did on China and the environment for my book, The River Runs Black. And I think above all, what I took away, it was a really exciting time to be in China in the mid 1990s. It was a time when environmental activism had just started up. China had just permitted its first environmental NGOs and you had this extraordinary beginning of civil society in China out-of-the-box thinking and all of these environmental activists, you know, many of them came to the environment, not because they were environmental experts, but because they were refugees from Tiananmen and they saw the environment as an important issue, but also as an area where they really wanted to push for political change. And so it was great. I got to know a lot of them personally, they became friends. And I think that's always informed my thinking of China in the sense that I believe that there is the potential for political change, that this is not a monolithic unitary actor, you know, the Chinese state and society. Uh, there are radically different opinions, both at the elite level and in society. And I think that also makes me much more open to ideas of engagement than I think are currently open because I have seen the impact of US cooperation uh, with China on the environment and on civil society development. So I think those are probably the two most important sort of formative elements of my thinking on China, sort of my early experience coming from the Soviet Union and my work on China and the environment. It's interesting because you first came to my attention when I read The River Runs Black. And I was spending a bunch of time in China on economic issues, but also on environment and conservation issues. And everything in that book resonated with me. So it was a terrific book. So Mike, now for you. When did your interest begin, and what about China stood out from the beginning to you? Well, I was an undergraduate at Stanford University in California, the state in which I was born, and I got quite scared in the Cuban Missile Crisis, but then a couple of years later, our Secretary of State at the time, Dean Rusk, made a speech about, why are we in Vietnam? And he said something like, there's going to be a billion Chinese armed with nuclear weapons going south to the rice bowl of Southeast Asia. <laughs> oh. So I took a class from a foreign service officer who had been in China, spoke Mandarin, and I was intrigued in the course about China. So I took another class and these two gentlemen told me, you need to go to Columbia University, get a PhD in Chinese studies and go in the government, which is sort of what I did. But at one point I was kind of warned, this is very difficult. The language is really difficult, takes 2,400 hours compared to 600 for French or Spanish. And the way the Chinese think is really difficult. It's not so straightforward. And the more people said that to me, the more it was like a challenge. So my dream of going to Goldman Sachs or being a lawyer for a famous law firm all went down the drain and I applied to go to Columbia University. Hank, I, the other day I found my application form to Columbia and it says, I hope to study China and someday perhaps work in a futuristically oriented think tank like the Hudson Institute. Oh, boy. And I had totally forgotten this. It's like 60 years ago. So my dream came true. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. And I tell you, we've all benefited from that dream. So now for today. And Mike, I'm going to start with you this time. You've been an advisor to the administration. In recent months, we've seen a very aggressive whole of government approach to China by this administration. 
what are the goals of the strategy? Are they working on behavior change, containment, regime change? What, what do you think's going on? Well, every cabinet secretary and a lot of different people in the White House all have their own China policies, Hank. This is a kind of a freewheeling administration. I've seen a lot of administrations as you, as you have too. So I put out this report last week. It's free. It's on the Hudson website. It's called A Guide to Trump Administration Statements on China Policy. And I found 200 of them. I organized them. A lot of them are tweets and interviews by the president himself. Then I have different subject areas, subject matter areas. The president helped me do this. So did some other cabinet secretaries, including Secretary Pompeo. But when I saw the whole 200 pages, I realized everybody's really off on their own subject matter. You have Pompeo talking about, we're not going to let China do in the Arctic what they're doing in the South China Sea. And then you kind of turn the page and Wilbur Ross is talking about the entities list is going to be very powerful in producing reform in China. And you turn the page and it's Secretary of Agriculture Purdue talking about, we got to sell more chickens and more pork. Yeah. <laughs> So I, the whole of government means everybody's active, but I don't think it's all coherent and as, as coordinated as it would be if you were president or if Liz Economy were president. Then you'd make things coherent and harmonized. So we could go on for a long time, but I think the, all that unites the administration is the president's original vision that he wrote books about. He wrote a chapter in 2000. He wrote another short chapter in the year 2015 that he feels... If he was the trade advisor, he would have negotiated some brilliant deals, but really stupid people handled all of our trade relations. So he was going to fix that. But that only takes you so far. That doesn't bring to bear all the other issues we have with China. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember going back many years before I joined the Bush administration and looking at China policy in those days and seeing that it wasn't an aggressive whole of China approach, but I saw Department of Energy had their own dialogue and their own issues and the Commerce Department did and Treasury did, and there wasn't any real coordination. And that was what the uh, strategic economic dialogue was designed to do, to coordinate and focus and push on what the issues then, which were currency and the economic imbalances and so on. And then we had the financial crisis, of course, and that took precedent. And we worked closely with them to help us get through that. But Liz, you've advocated a tough approach towards China. How do you rate the administration's actions and you know, how do you see China responding? So I guess I think um, the Trump administration has done a few things well. Uh, I think they've done a, a good job of acknowledging the change that Xi Jinping has brought to China, that this is not the China of Deng Xiaoping and Jiang Zemin and, and Hu Jintao. I think they've moved away from the Obama era and really from our policy of decades now of uh, engage but hedge to one that I characterize as sort of compete, counter, and contain. But what I found overall is that it's a highly defensive strategy. It's about pushing back against China without actually articulating what the U.S. stands for and what it is that we're bringing to the table in a terribly compelling way. And so I miss that sense of here are American values, here's what we stand for, you know, free trade and good governance and freedom of navigation. 
That has been articulated under the free and open Indo-Pacific concept, but you never hear the president talk about that idea. And that idea in many respects is much like an Obama era policy. And so I worry, and I think this speaks to what Mike just said, that you have this approach that's really not very coherent with every person marching to his, really it's only his, I guess, his own drum at this point. And I'm not sure what the end objective is because it just seems as though we're in a free fall without having a strategic end objective. Or if there is one, I don't see what it is. And just on the point about how China's responding, I mean, as I think you would expect China to respond, which is, you know, tit for tat. And so for every move that we make, China responds, and in some cases, then some. I often feel as though the only thing that has saved the U.S. with President Trump at the head of it is the fact that Xi Jinping himself is so terrible in so many respects, and the wolf warrior diplomacy is so unattractive that China has basically shot itself in the foot and had a lot of opportunities to step up to the plate to fill the gap that the United States has left as a leader on the global stage. But it, overall, it has failed because Xi Jinping is not ready to play that role. So Mike, Liz mentioned the relationship seems to be in a free fall. I look at it, it's in a downward spiral. The one thing I might disagree moderately with Liz on, I don't think China's been tit for tat. I think they've been pretty moderate when you look at their responses. I'm not saying they've been moderate in the actions that they've taken that have elicited our policies, but I think the responses have been pretty, pretty temperate. But anyway, so as I said, the relationship seems to be in a downward spiral. As you look towards the end of the year in the presidential election, what geopolitical flashpoints do you see emerging? What are the risks? What should we be most concerned about? Well, a bit on the good news side, Hank, in terms of risks, I think the level of communication between the two sides is still quite high. We have our largest embassy in the world is in Beijing, 2,300 people, and they're, they're busy with their Chinese counterparts. More than 50 agencies operate out of the embassy, most of which are involved in helping China in various ways. Your old dialogue, you'll be happy to know, was replaced by the so-called four engagement mechanisms. They actually met. Yep. There's been a lot of continuity in U.S.-China relations. So I can be like Liz, you know, and talk about the relationship aspiring downward. We're all going to die. But that would just be for fun on TV. I think basically continuity is the name of the game. And we have a lot of informal channels. I was very impressed, Hank, with your book, dealing with China, and to be specific, page 310. You're going over to see your friend Wang Qishan. The chapter is called Bit by Bit. And he previews to you that we're sort of in the mood to start the BIT negotiations again. Here's what our thinking is. And you go back and see Jack Lou and, and other people. And it got started for a while. Well, that kind of contact is still going on. A couple of your former friends and colleagues at Goldman Sachs are involved helping. So I am not as pessimistic as Liz is, except for the possible breakdown of communication. That to me is the number one geopolitical risk right now. If they just hang up the phone, or if the president has already said twice, you know, I don't want to call Xi Jinping at this time. If we break off communications, then the kind of super hawks on both sides begin to have their public dialogue. 
And we get people like Lo Yuan and Dai Xu saying, we need to sink an American ship next time they come on our freedom of navigation operation. And we have our hawks. We've got Steve Bannon and Rob Spaulding. There's a whole series of super hawks at this thing called the Committee on the Present Danger from China. And they talk about bringing China to its knees. And we have to dismember this place and overthrow the Communist Party. So if the two hawks on each side start talking like this, and we lose our private channels and our embassy channels, then I'm, I think that is a major geopolitical risk. And I'm not beyond saying things so I can outdo Liz here. I say, well, this could lead to war, Hank. Okay, well, wait a minute. Can I can I just say something? I'm a little confused because I, I the the idea that there's more continuity than change between the Obama administration to the Trump administration is extraordinary to me. I mean, not Very only common. no, no, it's, not just me. And we're we're in the midst of this trade war. We're trying to decouple uh, from China technologically and put Huawei in a death grip, no less for sure, and shut down their potential development of their semiconductor industry, for example. We closed the consulate in Houston. They responded by closing the consulate in Chengdu. I mean, what's going on diplomatically, economically, and and I think on the security front, what's happened in Hong Kong and our response in Hong Kong. I mean, this is a fundamentally different place, this U.S.-China relationship today, from where it was during the Obama administration. So I'm not sure I see that continuity, Mike, as much as some very significant change. Yeah, I think what we all three would agree on is even though there's been very significant change and the relationship is in a very bad spot and it is in a downward spiral, that the key is a communication. And that those formal and informal channels there's no doubt you would agree with that too, Liz, right? Because that's, to me, that would be the danger. That would be the danger that would cause you know, all of us to lose a lot of sleep. No great powers have ever gone to war because they wanted to. They stumble into it, right? Yes. And the communication is what's going to keep us from stumbling into it. Do we all agree with that? We do. I'm just not sure there's enough communication at this point. I mean, that dialogue has not met in a consistent way. It's sort of one-off communications on the trade side, a little bit on the security side. I don't feel very reassured by the degree of, of private and public, but maybe because it's so private and secret, I just don't know about it. So maybe that's what's going on. Well, I am somewhat reassured by Mike telling us that this communication is going on. And I think that's the key here. I really do, is to avoid either side going too far and letting this get out of control. But it's, it's in a bad place now. I know we all see that. So Liz, now I'm gonna to go to you because you've made a number of comments about General Party Secretary Xi Jinping. You've written this book, which has a lot of attention about him. So why has he been such a surprise to so many in the West? And what do you see as his priorities at home and abroad? Okay, so I don't think he's a surprise anymore, or at least he shouldn't be a surprise anymore. I think he was a surprise when he came to power for many people in the West. You know, his profile was not terribly high. I think, you know, he was known as someone who had a pretty strong commitment to anti-corruption. So that's always been sort of deeply ingrained in him. But he basically, you know, served in a number of very economically successful provinces, led them, but wasn't someone that was necessarily associated with 
undertaking or leading economic reforms. Nobody said Xi Jinping is a great economic reformer and innovator, right? I think he rode the success of the provinces, didn't do anything to hinder the success, but wasn't somebody that actually propelled them forward. Um, so when he came to power, I, I don't think people knew much about him. In fact, I was with about 50 or 60 Chinese in Abu Dhabi at the time that they announced the leadership lineup in 2012. And I can tell you that very few of them, these were scholars and officials, knew very much about him. All they were saying was that it looked like a pretty conservative uh, leadership lineup. This was tended to be a reform-oriented group, so they were somewhat distressed. I think in terms of his priorities, his priorities are the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, right? That's his mantra. And, you know, what does that mean? It means he wants a robust Chinese Communist Party at the forefront of the political system. He wants a People's Liberation Army that he has said is capable of fighting and winning wars. And he wants a modern and innovative economy uh, that's capable of competing with the United States and Germany and Japan, right? The transformation of China from the manufacturing center of the world to become an innovation center of the world. And I think he wants really to move from staking claims around Chinese sovereignty to realizing them. And that's the South China Sea, Hong Kong, and Taiwan. And I think if there are the flashpoints that we need to be watching, those are the three, uh, because I think that is a central priority for him. And I don't think he wants to leave office without having secured a much greater degree of sovereignty, for example, over Taiwan than mainland China currently has. So I'm quite concerned about that. And he said that he wants China to lead in the reform of the global governance system. And I think what that means is simply that he wants the rules of the road around things like human rights and internet governance and development finance to reflect Chinese values, Chinese priorities in ways that they haven't. China's the world's second largest economy. And Xi Jinping, you know, I think rightly believes that China should have a greater say in how the world's rules are structured. But I, it's unfortunate that I think in many respects, what he wants is antithetical to what the United States and other advanced market democracies want. So that's what I see as his priorities. You know, again, unfortunately, I think a number of them uh, directly uh, contradict sort of US interests. Mike, uh, before we move on, anything to add to that? Uh, no, like you, I really admired uh, Liz's book, The River Runs Black. In those days, I, I agreed with Liz in some optimistic way that the rise of NGOs and civil society, and I remember there's one whole chapter, Liz, on the Tibetan antelope and how all this outrageous yep. stuff going on in China was going to lead ultimately to reform. And Xi Jinping, as he was rising through the ranks, and there's a nice picture of Xi and Hank strolling by the West Lake in Hangzhou, the, uh, in those days, she was a reformer, and he brought a lot of American companies into China, and he met with American CEOs. Now, I think she is tactically pivoting in a way that began in 2011, 2012, with the rise of Bo Lai and the discovery of this sort of crazy hardliner faction. So she maneuvered, and now he's taken on board an awful lot of hardliners, and he's got to appease them. They're his base, if you will. So, they, but they don't seem to make concessions in, in talks with the Americans. If anything, they'll make a concession, Leoha goes home, Hank, and then they take it back a week later. So we're getting the feeling of an unstable political system at the top in the standing committee, where this weird guy who's been around for 30 years now, Wang Huning, he seems to come up with all these concepts 
about new model of great power relations. And there's like at least 10 of them now. So the instability is fed by a set of ideological concepts. And this is something that's pretty hard to explain to President Trump. <laughs> so let's move to President Trump. So he is no longer talking about his friend Xi Jinping, you know, and he's again calling COVID the China flu. Right, China virus. China virus, yeah, yeah. China virus. So what do you think are the main sources of tension in his mind between the two countries? Is it security issues, the pandemic, technology, values? What is it? Trade? What do you think he sees as the big tension, the big conflict with China? Well, I think it's pretty simple. He's a deal maker. He's proud of being a deal maker. His favorite book of the 14 books he's co-authored is Art of the Deal. So he looks at China as a set of deals, whether it's technology or trade or quite a long list of negotiations we're involved in with the Chinese. And I think one of those negotiations was the January 5th and 6th discussions. We want to help you and send some scientists to Wuhan. How about it? President's characterized his talks pretty much like that. And since that date, when Xi Jinping would not accept an offer of help in Wuhan, the president, I think, has felt betrayed by his partner in all the other deals going by. And we can explain to President Trump, well, Xi Jinping feels betrayed by you. There you were having steak dinner in Buenos Aires when the kind of the Ivanka of China gets taken prisoner in Vancouver. So the dangerous misperceptions, I think, are growing out of this multitude of issues. It's not just one issue. It's not just jet fighters crossing the midline of the Taiwan Strait, or it's not just the next espionage case. It's this overwhelming set of issues, specifically Xi Jinping not wanting help with the virus, and then the whole series of events that the administration is yet to declassify what its findings are on to what degree is Xi Jinping, uh, what Lou Dobbs calls a murderer. And he sometimes says to his guests, isn't Xi Jinping a murderer? of 150,000 Americans, what kind of retribution are we going to have? All the way over to other, the other side, the president himself twice now has said it could have been a mistake. It could have been a mistake. It's a kind of a forgiving tone with Xi Jinping. So let's now switch to a global issue. And I'm going to go to Liz here because, you know, when we look at huge global challenges, I know how much you care about climate change and environmental protection. There's nuclear proliferation. There's global growth, poverty alleviation. All of these would benefit, as you said earlier in the discussion, if the U.S. and China were able to find ways to cooperate here. Now, let's talk about the environment. You've thought very carefully about China's environmental footprint. You continue to follow that. A you know, big environmental footprint domestically and around the world. How far have they come today and what is ahead? And do you believe we're going to be able to find ways to cooperate in the future? So I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on this, Hank, as well, yeah. because I know this is an issue that you, know, you hold very dear to your heart and have worked on both in and out of government. So maybe you can say a few words as well. But I guess you know, I can look back you know, a decade or more, right? Certainly when you were in the Bush administration and think about the ways in which we talked about cooperating with China on the environment and on climate change. And it seems like so far away, right? Uh, it was about helping China, working with China. Could we partner with them on things like carbon capture and sequestration and 
you know, were there opportunities for technology transfer and, and joint, you know, technological development? I think we've moved past that point uh, at this point. I mean, first of all, all of this presupposes that we have a different leadership in the White House, of course, because this president is not interested in climate change and has pulled us out of Paris. And so, you know, we have to construct a, a kind of an alternative reality even to begin to address this in a serious way. But let's suppose that um, we have a different leadership or the president gets religion, President Trump gets religion on this. I think we'd have to look more now toward not only mitigation, but adaptation. I think it would be about China and the United States cooperating in third countries, perhaps more in the developing world. I think we could find some common ground and common purpose there. Certainly we would want China to take a step back from its coal-fired power plant sort of distribution through the Belt and Road. I think one of the things we've seen in China now is that while it has made strides at home, that it doesn't take the same initiative abroad. And I personally think that what this demonstrates is actually a lack of commitment to climate change on the part of the Chinese. I think this demonstrates the narrowness of Chinese interest because it really is about, you know, and I'm not saying this is, is you know, not understandable, but it really is about first and foremost, how do we serve the Chinese people, right? And then it's about the rest of the world. And I don't think China's really all about the rest of the world yet. I don't think Xi Jinping is about the rest of the world yet. So I think that would be an area to work toward. You know, the best thing we could do would be for both countries, you know, to take some more serious commitments on board and to realize them, right, in terms of reducing CO2 emissions or to think about an agreement on methane or something along those lines. There's a lot that we could do but again, I think we'd have to be in a very different place with a very different president to make any of that happen. Liz, I would you know, echo one thing you've said, which is there's no doubt that China, when you look domestically at the visible signs of pollution, you know, the dirty air, dirty water, dirty soil, they've made huge progress on that. And in terms of the conservation work they've done, you know, saving the wetlands and so on in China. But in terms of carbon emissions, they've been going up now, but before the pandemic for a number of years. So there's much less focus on that. And of course, outside of the world, their environmental footprint is pretty significant and pretty negative. But, you know, I, I look at this cooperation as going you know, far beyond the environment, because if we can't figure out ways to work together, whether it's on future pandemics or proliferation or, or, or whatever terrorism, the world's going to be a pretty dangerous spot. But let's end, and this I think is something I really want to hear both of your views, because I think it's a very interesting question. Let's look ahead a few years, and I'd like each of you to make a prediction about what the relationship will be like in five years. You know, this is a, whether we want to call it a downward spiral, this is a pretty tough patch. Is it going to continue? Is it going to get worse? Will Xi Jinping's power and influence inside China continue unabated? What about outside of China? Will he modify his assertive policies domestically and internationally? Of course, no one knows, but I'd be interested. Mike, let's start with you. Where do you see things in five years? How do, how do you analyze it? Well, how I analyze it, Hank, is in large part based on my visits to Beijing. I try to go over two or three times a year since Trump is elected. And I try to hang out with my hardliner friends. These are the guys who write, and women, 
who write uh, books and articles, you know, that we need to throttle the Americans because they're coming for China. This group is very happy right now. They, they think Xi Jinping is their man. They think the crossover point for when China's GDP surpasses America's GDP is getting closer and closer. The 100-year marathon is ahead of schedule, as they like to say. So that means a deteriorating overall relationship, unless the U.S. side wants to accommodate uh, this level of Chinese ambition. So one of the indicators I watch is the military side. Space force and the whole issue of China and outer space, China and cyber, there's a number of activities they've undertaken that I had never seen before in 30 years. And our military, even before Trump arrived, this is what happened under the Obama administration, our Defense Department was already getting quite alarmed in the days of Ash Carter as Secretary of Defense. You may recall, flew out to an aircraft carrier in the South China Sea and made a hostile anti-China speech with the media there looking toward China. The Trump administration has come nowhere close to that. So the military factor, the lack of, of concessions by the Chinese in the trade area across the board is a problem. Even though there's some promising things in the phase one deal, it's not a huge impressive effort to buy the things that they promised to buy. The third area is quite new also. It seems to me Elizabeth has sounded the alarm on this. It's these human rights violations where uh, Secretary Pompeo uses words like stain of the century. And we have this whole bipartisan outrage now on uh, Chinese human rights violations. So it's hard not to be pessimistic about the next five years, but I'm particularly worried also about the Taiwan issue. A lot of people in the Trump administration now are talking about the one China policy that China cares so much about, that will give us leverage. You have John Bolton writing a couple of op-ed pieces before he came in the administration. Let's recognize Taiwan diplomatically. You have, uh, on the other side, you have Elliot Cohen did a similar op-ed. So fooling around with the Taiwan issue, our one China policy, we've already got a cabinet secretary going over there, but he was careful to make a speech, say my trip here does not undermine the one China policy. But as soon as we start down that path, no matter who's president, that's quite a blow to Xi Jinping and his, his sense of the, let's, let's unify and rejuvenate China. So I'm kind of worried, Hank, that's my summary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not, not gonna make me sleep better at night. So, <laughs> so, so now I'll the positive side. <laughs> I was going to say, I think I've been more bleak over the course of our conversation, but let me try to end on a slightly more optimistic note then. <laughs> I guess I would say, and this probably, you know, is a, is a function of the people that I spend more time talking to in China, which tend to be more of the sort of liberal uh, political thinkers and entrepreneurial elite. And there I would say I, I see more convergence with thinking in the United States. I think there are going to be a new set of issues around privacy, for example, that a lot of entrepreneurs are taking very seriously. I think they don't like Xi Jinping's very repressive political sort of policies. I think there's the potential for a pushback, actually, against Xi Jinping emanating from this group as well as officials who are concerned about the direction in which she is moving the country and from the outside world. And here I think it's important, we focused really exclusively on the US-China relationship, but I think it's important to think about the extent to which now it's not just the United States that is pushing back against China, but it's many countries in Europe, it's Australia, it's Japan. 
the United States is not standing alone. And I think, you know, we just had the head of the Czech Senate going to Taiwan, right? And Wang Yi threatening, you know, uh, the Czech industry because of that. I think the more that we're starting to see a coalescence and a coherence in policy attitudes toward China from a much broader swath of advanced market democracies, I think um, there will be more people in the leadership in China who believe that Xi Jinping has overreached and that there will be a call for him to take a step back from so many of his really assertive policies. So that's my hopeful uh, prediction is that over the next five years, and assuming we have a different administration in our country, uh, that we'll find some space for greater cooperation because there will be, uh, because Xi Jinping will be more constrained and we will have a, a leadership that is more thoughtful about how it approaches our allies and, uh, and the opportunities for engagement with China. Well, we will end on that note. Thank you both for a terrific discussion on a topic which is now and will continue to be critically important to the future of Americans and to the whole world. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.